Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society. And we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself, this series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, and above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by a very special guest and somebody that I've known personally for at least a year. Um, so I'm really looking forward to finally getting to know him a little bit better because we seem to never actually have a, a personal one-to-one chat. Um, his name is Patrick Davey. He's a consultant psychiatrist in the UK. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really excited to have him on our series today. So Patrick, welcome, first of all, to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tapas, for that. Um, really nice to be here. And um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So absolutely. I mean, we're absolutely thrilled to have you. Um Obviously, people will not know um, exactly who you are yet. Um, so I'll, I'll give a little introduction as to how I first met you um, and how you came across Havas. And I think if we get time, let's also talk about the innovation program, because I think that's an interesting thing in itself. But many years ago, when I was in the NHS, um, there was this, um, I- I- this innovation, if you like, this service that was starting, led by the great Tony Young, the director of innovation for um, NHS England. Um, and it was called the Clinical Entrepreneur Innovation Programme. And it was made for doctors who had weird and wonderful ideas for businesses, for social enterprises, for charities, um, to go and learn about how to make their idea uh, you know, more business-like or more business savvy in the real world. Because it's not something that we're taught as doctors, obviously. Tell us a little bit about um, what it was that you offered to that programme. How was it that you, you went into that innovation programme? Let's start there. Yeah. No, um, so I, I think I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. So I was raised in Somerset and I used to keep chickens and um, I had um, five chickens and a cockerel. Um, and I used to sell chicken eggs. Um, my sort of first business was selling chicken eggs um, to teachers at school. Um, but it came to an unfortunate end when my brother didn't remember to put them to sleep when I was at a middle school disco and the local fox put pay to that oh, no. first business. And it was a <laughs> harrowing tale to start with, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I've always had like um, an, you know, entrepreneurial sort of ideas. And I can remember writing to Gillette about um, an idea called the Razor Blazer. And I was living in a shared house with lots of other guys and we all had the same razor, but there was no way to identify which was yours. So I had this idea to describe like a little um, a plastic kind of sheath that goes on the, the razor, which you could personalise um, with your football team or name or colours or 
pattern. Um, and Gillette very nicely wrote back and thanked me for my enthusiasm, but didn't take it any further. Um, and then actually I did a marquee business to pay sort of my way through medical school out of a transit van I had at the time with a, with a friend. Um, so yes, there's always been like an entrepreneurial side to me. And, and I think understandably, um, in some ways, medicine doesn't necessarily nurture that side of things. Um, but for me, it's always been a very creative outlet. And then when I saw the, you know, the clinical entrepreneur scheme, I was, I was so excited because um, I think there are quite a few people who have great ideas. And I think that's what's been good about things like the quality and, you know, quality improvement um, movement, the idea that people on the front line can have ideas um, and actually get support to bring those ideas to life. And that to me was the essence of that program is, you know, people who work day to day, um, see the problems in front of them, have really good practical ideas of how to sort of try and solve those problems, are given the support and just sort of the cheerleading as well. Just someone saying, hey, that's really valuable mm. what you're trying to do. Mm. It's how you might try and navigate that world. So, yeah, so it's been a brilliant thing to be part of. Um, and it's really, you know, it's really developed um, the, the scheme, I think, over the last few years. And you can really get the opportunity to meet some excellent people and network with other sort of like-minded souls um, yes, it's been great. Yeah, I, and you know what? We'll we'll come back to the program in a moment, um, mm. uh, because I think I think there's so many interesting things which relate to mental health around that program, which I'd like to touch on as well. But tell us a little bit about um, you know you've given us that background, uh, and we, we you know, we'll point out there are other brands available uh, if anyone else wants to uh, find <laughs> out about <laughs> shaving. But um, what 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 led you to medicine then, and, and particularly psychiatry? Because that's uh, a yeah. very, you know, I imagine that's a very devoted specialty and a tough one, uh, given the nature of what mm. you come across. So uh, what what was the journey to that? Yeah, um, so um, I did medicine at 18, and I didn't get, I was terrible at chemistry, and I still am terrible at chemistry. And I, I got offered a place, but didn't get my chemistry um, a level. So then I repeated it again and still didn't get what I needed to go to medical school. So I then went and off on a, you know, went to university. Well, actually went, I've worked actually as a groundsman after that for about six months. Um, and then worked as a housekeeper in hospital, did some hospital radio actually. Um, I so I knew that. there was always an interest. For me. Oh, that's <laughs> super interesting. Radio Redhill. <laughs> I did the Sunday morning request show. Um, and <laughs> so, um, so, and then actually what I did was then when I did a psychology degree, I mean, I've always had an interest in people, in people's stories. Um, I thought medicine would be a really good vehicle to sort of combine that with actually helping people. Mm. So when I didn't get in to do medicine. I then did a psychology degree down in Cardiff, after which, again, I was a bit unsure about which direction to take things. And what I realized was actually, I, I, you know, I was interested in people's stories, but for me, I wanted more of a tangible ability to sort of interact with people more of an interface mm. than reporting stories um so then actually thought about clinical psychology and then did um i was a, a care worker with autistic adults for a year in godalming um became an assistant psychologist and then there was an opportunity to do a fast track medical um, degree so applied for that and very fortunately got onto that in southampton but that strand of people people's stories just stayed with me and then i just got drawn more and more towards psychiatry um, and it just seemed a natural fit for me. And I don't know, if, you know, it's a long time ago for me, but I knew there were certain things I wasn't good at. I could, you know, get through them. But the thing where I felt most at home was doing psychiatry, was um, 
particularly community psychiatry is what I really enjoyed as I moved through. That's where I felt, oh, this is right for me. This is the place, um, despite some of the, you know, the challenges I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it, it now makes total sense why you did psychiatry. And I love that um, explanation that you, you, you enjoyed hearing patient stories and you wanted it to be more interactive and moving away from radio. It, it's, um, it's such a nice setup to where you've ended up. But I suppose um, the world is very different to now from when you began. And we've obviously had the pandemic in between. We've had junior doctor strikes um, we've had increasing numbers of doctors leaving the profession. What are some of the strains and stresses that have crept in or how has the job changed from when you first began? Yeah, well, I think something I've noticed now talking to juniors. So I, I supervise um, a trainee and I interact actually regularly with medical students um, and have the opportunity really to hear about what is what their experiences are. And they, they do sound very different to the kind of challenges I think we had Um what I remember about being a junior doctor was living all together in a hospital. Um, and there was this shared kind of collective resilience, I suppose you could call it, this sort of psychological buffering of what was an extremely stressful experience, mm. as I recall it. Um, but it was kind of really clearly shared and defined. And another thing I think was hugely beneficial at the time was that you were, you were part of what they called a firm. So you were part of a team, essentially, of doctors who moved around essentially as a group. And you had your consultant, who was the figurehead of your firm. But you then had um, the registrars, you had core trainees, and you had, the, and you had the juniors. But you knew whenever you were doing things like you were on call, which is when new patients are coming into the hospital, um, and you're assessing them, you do that together. If you're on nights, you do it together. So there was this sense of building those relationships and having that support network around you mm. so that when things were difficult, because you had built those relationships up over the time, actually it was manageable. And some of the things which the juniors talk to me about now is that that has changed, that often, I don't know, this is obviously just um, anecdotal, but in, in some hospitals they've gone away from those kind of almost like collegiate or um, team-based working to kind of quite individualised working. So you're not even sure which the team you're working with on a particular day. And I think that's a, a huge detriment um, to the experience. And also, I think that's probably quite frightening for people to, to manage. Um, so I think that's one sort of change, um, which I think is a really important one, particularly in, in the world I'm sort of trying to work in now. Um, I think also that, you know, there is growing sense of being very very stretched um amongst the juniors um and the medical students see that as well um you know a lack of resources um working longer hours without you know big big holes in kind of rotors that kind of thing and that does obviously you know those kind of psychosocial stresses obviously on the system um impacts the people working in it and i think they're feeling that and i think there's a, a huge number of doctors i think one in four now are con contemplating leaving leaving medicine and, you know, it's having a mental health knock on, you know, and one of four are reporting that's related to a mental health impact of um, the work environment. And obviously COVID amplified all of that for everyone. Mm. Um, so in my, I was, I was a community, I just got a job as a community consultant about two weeks before, no, two, yeah, two to four weeks before sort of COVID hit properly. Um, I've got, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, I really am sharing today about, about three or four years ago. And um, I was on two immunosuppressing drugs at the time. So I immediately became a shielder, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really frightened. So, I mean, I went into sort of Cedar Leningrad style, 
you know, ration counting. It was really you know, frightening time. Um, but actually trying to do a job with that on, you know, that concern and a new job with a new team remotely, you know, it was, it was, a, it was just a, a game changing time. And through that, we had a doubling of our referral rate for our mental health team at the time on an already sort of stretched service. Um, so, yes, I mean, that's my experience. And I'm sure other people who had very different experiences on the, on the real front line, you know, dealing with COVID patients, which I can't relate to. But from a mental health perspective, we certainly felt the the additional sort of stress and, you know, um, mental health deterioration of people who were very, very isolated through COVID um, and really struggled. Mm. Yeah, I, I think something you said in the middle there, which um, just resonated with me so much and, and made total sense was in the old days when we were all medical students and when we were junior doctors, the way that we used to be part of a firm um, and the way that there was this sort of the growing of you as a person as you went through this sort of series of trials and comical mistakes that you would make in your early days, but that collective support and talking about it and debriefing at the end of each night with your mates who actually were the same people you worked with in the day um, just made you a better doctor and a better person at the end of it. I wonder whether, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. I can't, I can't, you know, I know it's anecdotal, but that not having that, it has to be a negative uh, thing for, for learning. But I wonder whether some of the negative aspects of firms still do remain. Uh, I'm talking about that sort of almost trial by humiliation on ward rounds and things, which at the time was a kind of tough love from your consultant and you you underwent and then eventually when you got it right and they saw you improving day after day you eventually then were you know promoted from no longer just being the coffee boy to being allowed to go to surgery with them and and that sort of thing but if you're not seeing the same face every day and if you're seeing a new junior day after day and you're still being quite firm with them from the junior point of view it just becomes a scary experience devoid of learning um and I suppose that's a very stressful place to be because we did go through that stress, but we also went through the growth. If you're just continually going through the stress and you're being moved around like a resource as opposed to being grown in a team like we were, that's that's a really difficult challenge. I think you just that was something you um, you verbalized really nicely. Um, and actually, I wonder whether that's a, a good segue for us to then uh, or a good launch pad for us to move into some of the ways that you've now started to try and tackle some of these issues because it's impossible for one person or company to say they've got a a, a magic wand to put some of these challenges right in such a large place as the NHS but maybe now just let the audience know a little bit about what's the innovation and the idea that you had um, when you pitched it to the innovation program. So my organization is called Moai Health, and what we have created is a, a digital mental health and well-being platform to help frontline organizations embed the most effective, protective, and proactive mental health and well-being solutions for their workforce. And so if, I, if I'm an organization and I want to understand more about what the mental health of my team or organization is like, is, is that something that you can do? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's really what we want to do. We really want to give organisations really accurate data of how their workforce are feeling, the kind of psychosocial stresses they're under. And we want to give you that to you in a way which is um, not just leave you with that. We then want to offer you things that you can do about mm. it. 
um, because I think that's a real problem. Um, so first of all, it's meaningful data and then meaningful interventions, which are all evidence-based so you can actually act on the issue which we've identified. I think, I think what's really interesting about that is that it moves away from um, mental health being seen as a soft science, perhaps, or a, a, this sort of vague uh, area. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're really like quantifying it. You're putting numbers and figures and data behind it and saying to organisations that you can be doing better in this area and here's specifically how you can do better. One of the things I, I just want to get a feel for is, what, do you do this at, a, at an organisation level or do you do it at an individual level? How, how does that work? Let's suppose I have a feeling as a, you know, as a company manager of some sort, um, uh, there's a couple of individuals who could do with a little bit more help, but I, I also want to get a feel for the overall company or team that I'm dealing with. Do, do you get into that level of nuance? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, all the evidence out there suggests that what the, the most effective, in fact, the only effective way to, to look at um, influence individuals and organisation, mental health and well-being is at sort of three key levels of looking at the individual absolutely, looking at how they work within teams and then as a whole organisation, looking for patterns within within those. Um, so certainly, it, you know, what we essentially do is we gather data from individuals to inform those different levels. So at the moment, it's, it's very much questionnaire driven, but we're moving towards um, biometrics as well to gather as much information as we can about how an individual is. That then goes through a kind of a valencing machine, if you like. So it's given meaning based on the evidence-based um, background that those uh, questionnaires have. And then based on any deficits at an individual level, they get uh, a confidential report with um, focused, targeted interventions to help them at the time of need. Um, and that's really important because there's a huge disparity, I think, between, if you read sort of literature around it, between... Um, need and then accessing need. Right. So one of our big things is that we join those dots together. We almost give people the nudge, give them yeah. the permission to go and seek the help. Lots of organisations have already got things they do. They're kind of fragmented. So we actually weave in any organisation current resources they've got mm. and they build that into our framework. Um, and then at an organisation at team level, you also get this aggregated data pathway um, and patterns that you can follow with with support from us to see exactly like you say where are the problems which team are the problems in um how do they compare to other teams and you know start to be curious about why is that so you can really then focus your you know everyone has limited resources but instead of just doing a blanket one size fits all approach you can then start doing really focused pieces yeah. of work and checking that they're actually effective i mean that that's it's important and interesting that you say that because i think there has been a bit of a tendency from some of the, the research we've done um, that, you know, knee-jerk reactions such as let's, let's have a, a mental health awareness day doesn't really cut it when it comes to getting to the heart and solutions um, of what you can do better. But what, what's really lovely to hear is that, first of all, it's confidential to those who need the service, but it also removes some of those barriers perhaps to getting help. Time and again, we've mm. seen that there are so many barriers to people wanting to get help. Um, and I'm sure you're, you know, ultra aware of this but i believe in medicine to this day it still exists this feeling that if if you're seen to have a, a weakness or a deficit of some sort whether it's physical or mental it puts your job at risk it puts your credibility at risk your colleagues and your you know your peers don't see you the same way 
Is it, how do you get around that problem? Do you think that still exists, um, or is that something that you're finding that you're also managing to address? So, you know, it's a really good point. I, th- I think it certainly still exists, and it certainly um, exists in lots of different industries, and it's it's, uh, it's definitely there in in medicine. Uh, I think you know, in terms of specialty psychiatry, maybe a bit better in terms of approaching that, but just generally, I think it is still an issue. Um, one of the areas we're really interested in is trying to model when some people at risk. So instead of waiting for somebody to become unwell, mm. we we believe that we can start to predict people who are in a kind of an, an at risk kind of category, and that's bringing together you know the psychosocial, environmental risk factors as well as what they're reporting, um, and actually getting help then is the key because. The longer you go into sort of the trajectory of illness, the, the longer it takes to recover and get back from. Right. Um, so if we help people and help organisations, help people themselves start to become aware and notice that and get help early, but also help organisations help their people get help early. Mm. That's really important. I think, I think then, you know what, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's, uh, that's such an obvious point and it never occurred to me, which is that you're, you're almost doing the prevention rather than the cure. The, maybe the stages where we're looking at it, it's hard for people to get help, but also they're in that stage where they can't, they can no longer feel able to get help. And you're you're stepping in well before that. I think that's that's a brilliant observation that, I, that you know hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, one of sorry, just to interrupt, one one of our big kind of um, things is about you know we we both worked in the NHS. You know, it's very reactive, and that's the model. Yeah. You know, it is. So- they go and get help we have to go upstream we have to start understanding early what is happening what soft signs are there you know does sleep go off a little bit is somebody just you know a bit later to work are they having a few sick days what are the soft signs there which actually can tell us way in advance what's going on and i think another thing i get really excited about is not just trying to pick up when somebody might be getting a bit unwell but you know i mentioned protective what else can we wrap around people what else can we give people themselves to start to be able to manage the kind of natural kind of psychological hits you get in any industry but especially within the, the you know the medical world um so that's why i'm really interested in the other things we do which are kind of the culture side of things right. um interpersonal relationship work and it's not really clever stuff we've just you know we've 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 kind of um stuck our kind of flag in the sand around a few frameworks we think are important to kind of build those things we might be wrong mm. but the evidence is that they should do something because you get lots of noise around be more resilient what does that mean you know you've got to hang that on something on a framework on an approach yeah. so you know one of our big um kind of approaches is to try and instill a sense of belonging within individuals um, and that's where the kind of the Moai story kind of came from but as well as that you know that's mediated by things like psychological safety which is lots of noise around at the moment um, compassion that's and that's our kind of our third kind of cultural um, pillar really and if, if we know that if you put those things in place it's really effective in not just people's you know mental health but also their physical health because we know if you if you if you um, if you thwart some more sense of belonging, if you exclude somebody, that, that cuts us to the core. Now, that's a primal drive in all of us. So there's lots of work which can be done to try and improve those kind of things. I mean, it's brilliant listening to you. You're clearly such an expert and passionate in, um, in, in helping organisations and individuals. And obviously, it's, it's your, also your day-to-day job as a psychiatrist. But there's, you're, you're also quite humble, I think, because something I saw on your website um, is that I think you're one of the first 
companies in the UK at least to be led by physicians which helps organizations achieve an actually sort of nationally recognized ISO certification in mental health and well-being for their workplace. I think that was, uh, you know, it's a really differentiating point between what you offer and perhaps what um, other organizations are doing. But can you tell me a little bit about what that actually means? And, and also, where do you think um, w- the workplace culture in general is heading with regards to certifications and things like that? Yeah, no, I think that's, it's a really important point. And, it's, and to me, it's a kind of, uh, again, I'm, I'm excited about this kind of movement because it's as as you mentioned earlier on it's about looking at mental health and well-being and taking it really seriously you know it's a hugely damaging thing for people um and what you what you're seeing is that there are now um nice the national institute of clinical excellence have um produced guidelines on workplace well-being the world health organization have public health england have um the cqc um to the Care Quality Commission, who kind of do, you know, monitor standards of healthcare facilities in the UK. They've now introduced regulations and certainly in their key lines of inquiry, they're very pro um, ensuring that there are workplace wellbeing provision for staff. And then also the ISO, as you mentioned. So they've, um, all of them are, are, are recommendations. So nothing is mandated yet. Right. But what they all share in common is, um, Well, for me, what's exciting is that they are there. So they are saying this is an important thing. So they all focus on what's called psychosocial risk factors and how you can start to identify those within your organisation to try and mitigate the impact of those on your employees. Because there's certainly a relationship, of course there is, between our working conditions and how we all feel, Mm. and especially for people like, you know, healthcare professionals. What are some of the other industries that you have worked with outside of um, healthcare so far? So we've done some work with um, in the education sphere, so working with some schools, and then we've done some work with um, private organisations, so um, yeah, and, and a you know, marketing company and, and an advertising company. And I think what's really interesting is the application of our model to any environment mm. and how it can be useful and give any, you know, anybody who's, you know, in, in the kind of, well, anyone working in those, action, in those environments help. Um, as well as understanding. And then, you know, um, for example, with a, this school, one of the schools we're working with, um, we're able to identify that there's a real issue with sleep, which, you know, it's not that surprising, is it? You know, we've all been sort of 16 year olds, you need a lot of sleep, but actually it was so powerful to see it in data, in a, in a data present, presented way, that actually the school are considering changing the, the starting time for the sixth Wow, class. that's amazing, because, isn't it? You know, and that, that's, that to me is the power of meaningful, accurate data. Yeah. Because I, we, 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 you know, we, we've obviously, when we found that out for them, we then um, you know, discussed what are the options you could do. And that is, you know, it's, it's an extreme option. I think suddenly that school will become the most popular school in the whole region if they, if they delay their start time. I mean, it, it's, that sort of, it's that sort of insight, which I think is just so interesting. Yeah. You know, there's been amazing work... Um, you know, in the labor in the labor economics journal, they they do like um, a yearly um, review of kind of all the kind of big statistics bodies. So in the UK, they get gathered data from the ONS, 
And what they found and have seen over the last few years is a real shift and rise in intensity of working environments, but a reduction in skills and discretion. And that's um, what they mean by skills and discretion. This is particularly for, for women they've noticed this. That's our ability to feel autonomous, to have some sense of decision making, right. to have some ability to make a difference and grow from the skills you've got. So not just doing your thing all the time forever, but actually there is, there is you know, there's growth, personal growth. And what's staggering about that is they're able to um, correlate that to mental health. Um, so they've been able to show that if you worked in the top um, fifth of um, organisations which have high rates of skills and discretion as a woman, you've got an 8% um, less lower risk of, of depression. Mm. You know, that's, that's a really interesting thing you can tell from data. Mm. And that's what we're trying to bring to this space. But organisation-specific data... You know, if we can tell organisations things like the school that, that you know to, to really focus on sleep as an intervention, I think that can have a huge impact on then the, the well-being and then ultimately the performance and enjoyment of those of those children. Yeah, I, I think you're just you're you're helping people to take a better look at themselves and then find better ways of working. I suppose is a very simple way of putting it. It just makes total sense when you when you um, describe some of those insights that you're getting back. It, it it's absolutely fascinating. I suppose it's early days. Um, at the moment, but are you? Do you think there's a difference between um, the types of benefits that you'll you'll see for non-healthcare companies and healthcare companies? Like, or are you already starting to see different patterns of, you know, culture and um, solutions? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I think for for healthcare, for example, we're really interested in trying to get really good data about things like working patterns, shift patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, what can we tell an organization about? You know, what is the optimum amount of days that people can, can keep performing night shifts? You know, is it, we used to do seven in a row yeah. when I was, yeah. when I were allowed, <laughs> you know, and it, you know, back in the day. And that seemed like a lot. Um, and, you know, but actually we need to really understand things like that. So I think in healthcare, you can tell, you can, you can start working out quite a lot. Um, which is healthcare specific, mm. you know, what is, should, should we go back to like a firm type structure? Does that work better for organizations? Um, I think there's things you can work with, um, within healthcare specifically, um, related to the kind of work there is, but you know, it does apply you know, differently to different organizations. And that's the whole point, you know, so in the, the construction organization, obviously there's a very different makeup to, um, the demographic right. of that versus healthcare. But as I said earlier on, like, you know, if, if you know that skills and discretion is a thing which particularly prohibited women, you know, nursing is a predominantly female um, female workforce. Actually, if you then focus on an intervention which attests to trying to change that there, that can have a significant effect on, on mental health. Well, actually, that might not be a particularly good idea to do something like that in the construction industry for men because that's not actually an issue mm-hmm. related. So the point is you get this industry-specific picture of the kind of patterns and get a good understanding so then you can almost get industry specific interventions and focuses and that to us you know not just at that level but also at a you know at team level as well how do we help this individual team work better together um because that's you know also as important because those teams obviously make up the, the bigger ecosystem and organization what what do you think some of the benefits could be to the pharmaceutical industry if they're wondering how does this service relate to them well, I think um, one of the things I've noticed about um, how things have changed, I know we talked a bit about that today, and I can remember as a junior being invited to um, presentations um, by different pharmaceutical companies and, and having space and time to actually listen to the presentations um, and 
I think that's something which is really quite, well, you know, time is certainly something which I think is really difficult to eke out um, now. And there's a lot more pressured on, on doctors and healthcare professionals. And I sort of think that what I think is interesting about what we can do is we can essentially um, look at a working week and understand at what points in the working week people are feeling different ways. You know, um, we can understand when people are most receptive to new information, when people are most relaxed, uh, when people are most stressed. And I think what actually you can use that knowledge and understanding to then plan when you try and engage um, with different healthcare professionals. So actually, you know, they're in a better space and more open-minded and available to actually hear information. And you know, the organisations who are trying to liaise with them actually, you know, get that exchange um, in terms of time. Yeah, I think I think that's so important that we all, um, as an industry, marketing, advertising, pharmaceutical, whichever industry it is, learns better when and how to engage with doctors, not just to see them as prescribers of a potential drug, but um, to really understand how to better support them. I think that's where um, y- your, your service in particular could have some really interesting insights. Um, we've, we've been on uh, a bit of a, as you say, a trip down memory lane full of foxes, chickens, um, your radio voice, uh, and obviously touching on the NHS and um, Moai as well. Can, can you just give us a, a little um, aspiration or you know, hope? Where do, you, where do you see yourself in a few years' time and what do you think uh, about the future for your company too? Yeah, so um, for in terms of myself, so I'm, I'm really enjoying this this part of, of my life. So I, I still work for the NHS part-time and then do this part-time. And uh, for me, it's been an amazing sort of creative outlet. And it's, it's a different way, I think, to make a real impact on um, the mental health and well-being of of you know, a lot of people. Um, and I think there are gains that can be made. And I'm really excited about, you know, continuing that journey um, over the next few years. And we certainly want to try and be um, be up and running, be available and being used and being gathering really good information for people in the health sector, the education sector and the private sector as well, to be able to give organisations really meaningful data so that they can do the best they can to help the people who work for them while also supporting individuals to get um, proactive early help and support to try and make some in, some inroads into what is a really big and difficult challenge. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I think all that remains is for me to, to thank you for being on our, our programme today. Um, and thanks for sharing all of that insight. I know it's still early days for the company, but I, I really hope it continues to grow and do well. Um, so thank you once again and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tapas. Thanks for having me.